Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. It's wonderful to have all of you here. It's wonderful, always, always wonderful to come and be a part of the gathering, the gathering of the saints. We're going to be in James chapter 3. Uh, this is part 3. Part 3 of my sermon, uh, it's turned into part 3 of the sermon, Taming the Beast. Taming the Beast. This is an excerpt from an article by Michelle Caruso, which ran in the New York Daily News. Delise Williams, a woman who was promised cosmetic surgeries on extreme makeover that would transform her life and destiny. She was promised these surgeries. She has sued the producers of the hit TV show. That dream was shattered when one of the dental surgeons examined her and reported that her recovery time would take longer than they had thought. So she was pulled from the show the night before the surgeries were scheduled to begin, and she was sent home to Texas from California. According to the lawsuit, she sobbed uncontrollably when she was given when she was given the news, and she said, how can I go back as ugly as I left? I was supposed to come home pretty. Wesley Cordova, an attorney for Williams, claims that Delise is so hurt and humiliated that she won't leave the house now. She grocery shops at midnight. The lawsuit also claims that Williams' relationship with her family has been damaged. The producers coached family members not to accept Delisa's physical flaws and pushed them to verbally express their opinions on taped interviews, which Delise later saw. The lawsuit claims now that she has returned in the same condition in which she left, there were no secrets, no hidden feelings, no rewards. Finally, Cordova Cordova alleges that the emotional stress from the entire situation had a tragic impact on Delisa's sister, Kelly. Kelly could not live with the fact that she had said these horrible things that hurt her sister. She fell to pieces, is what it says. Four months later, she ended her life with an overdose of pills, alcohol, and cocaine. The lawsuit concludes the family is shredded. There is, there is a human cost to this. Now this story could be used to illustrate many things, right? Including the fleeting nature of outward beauty. But for our purposes, it demonstrates the destructive nature of our tongues. In this story, we see how the tongue can destroy many lives when it is not controlled. The story graphically portrays how the tongue can destroy a, an entire family. They will never be the same after this, right? They will never be the same after this incident because of what was said and the aftermath of it. Now, it would be easy to blame the TV network, right? It would be easy to say that they did this. But in reality, it was the tongue. The tongue was the beast, the beast that was unleashed on this family. But we see that in James chapter 3, right? 
In James chapter 3, James addresses the tongue. James addresses the tongue, tongue especially in the midst of trials and suffering and how we react to them. Let me read this passage to you. And again, I will read verses 1 through 12. My hope is today to finish up uh, this entire section. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter, a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for being able to be here to get together to to hear your word. Father, we know that this is uh, the height of our worship time as we hear your word preached. Father, I pray that that I would not interject myself, but that I would just preach the truth of the word of God. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and that will help illuminate what I'm preaching so that it might be clear. Father, I pray that I would clearly communicate. I pray that you would help those who hear to understand. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we've started from this passage to learn five tactics to restrain the destructive nature of the tongue. The first tactic that we learned was that you must regard the danger. That's verse 1. James says there's great danger in the words that we use. So he starts them starts by warning them not that many not that not many of them should be preachers or teachers because teachers encourage stricter judgment. Teachers will be held to account for what they teach and for leading others astray if they do so. As such, only those who have been tested ought to stand up and teach and preach. This is a great Teaching is a great responsibility which far outweighs any honor one may receive from it. There is great danger in teaching because of the ability to lead others astray. Scripture tells us not to lay hands on one too quickly. Because he, that one who we lay hands on, uh, may become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
That's 1 Timothy 3.6. Jesus himself warned uh, not us not to, or of the blind that is, leading the blind, that they will both fall into a pit. And so if the teacher is blind, if the teacher is not one who should be standing before the flock teaching them, he will lead them into great, uh, great tragedy. He will lead them literally into the pit. And today, there are a great many snares out there for men who do not have the character to lead God's flock. It seems like that there's not a week that goes by without the failure of some Christian pastor, even ones that we know and and have trusted. The danger will only become greater as persecution increases. Do you understand that? As persecution increases, the danger will only become greater. James himself speaks to living the Christian life while suffering from persecution. In James James's day, persecutions had increased and his listeners were enduring grave problems. But it seems their tongues, get this, it seems their tongues made the situation worse. That's why James is dealing so much with the tongue. As they are going through these difficulties, their tongues are, are exacerbating an already grave situation. Sadly, we see the same phenomena today. Just look at social media. Actually, I'm not telling you to, to look at social media. Actually, if I was telling you anything, it would be to stay away from it. But if you, if you do look, no, you, you see it. You, you see what's going on. A few days ago, a, a prominent Christian figure commented, wondering whether Paige Patterson, we, brought it, we talked about Paige Patterson last week, the, 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 the president of the seminary who has been asked to step down because of some of the things that he says said, some of the things that he's done. So he, he's been, this Christian figure commented on him wondering out loud on social media whether or not he had been treated rightly. Last time I checked, in about four days, there's 155 comments on that post. 155 comments to him one, just wondering out loud whether or not Paige Patterson had been treated rightly. Many of those were Christians. Get this, many of those were Christians attacking him for wondering whether or not he had been treated graciously. Is that the way we should act? But that's exactly what's happening. And here's what's going on, though, is that the watching world is seeing all this. The watching world is seeing all this, and I'm telling you, they're going to use it and have used it against us. He even posted, this, this prominent Christian man posted a second time apologizing, get this, apologizing for being rash in his original post, showing the confusion of the day. I mean, it's, it's amazing how confused we are, and it's, it's coming clearly coming through on, Christian, on, on social media. And that's what's happening with, as, we, as persecution begins to ramp up. As we begin to speak out, as we begin to say things that are out of order, we're going to see chaos and confusion continue to rise. And therefore, we must regard the danger. We must regard the danger. If we're going to to stand up and if we're going to, to preach and teach and lead, especially in this environment, we need to make sure that we are of the right character before God to do so. Because there's a danger. A grave danger, especially in our hypercharged environment. Secondly, secondly, James says you must realize the depravity. That's verse 2. James reminds his people that all stumble. 
that we all stumble. One stumble makes us a transgressor of the law. One stumble makes us a, a transgressor of the law, so therefore we all need grace and mercy. We all deserve condemnation, yet God shows us grace and mercy if we believe in Christ. We've all been forgiven much. Therefore, we must forgive others and show grace to others. We must be gracious in the use of our tongues. We must not be quick to condemn. We must not be quick to spread vicious lies and rumors. James says we all stumble. And the man who does not stumble in what he says is a perfect man. Now, there are a couple of ways for us to look at this. We all stumble, yet, yet we must work hard to bridle the tongue. And, and secondly, we must understand that everyone else, all the people around us will stumble from time to time. Therefore, we must forgive them. Does that make sense? It goes both ways. It goes both ways, that, that we must work hard to bridle our own tongues. We must work hard to control our own tongues, but we must also understand that everyone else around us is, is struggling the same way. And from time to time, they will offend us. They will say things that they ought not say. And we must be quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. Think about all the times you've stumbled, maybe with your spouse or with your kids. Or with that driver who cuts you off. Or with the church. We've all said things that we wish that we could take back, right? We've all said things that we've all had the words roll out of our mouth, roll off our tongue, and we're trying to get them back, but we can't get them back. They just come out. We say the things we ought not say. Therefore, we must realize the depravity, right? We must realize that we're, we, we are depraved. We must realize that those around us are as well. We all stumble and we all need forgiveness. That's the first two tactics. We must regard the danger and we must realize the depravity. Now let us look at number, number three. You must recognize the dominion. You must recognize the dominion, James says. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. At this point, James gives, begins to give illustrations of his teachings on the tongue. The NAS says the first word is now. He, he, he brings out, the NAS brings out now, but there is really more force here than this word portrays. He says, in effect, look, look at the horses. Look at the horses. He wants them to open their eyes to, to see something that is made in creation or made clear in creation. Something that, that they have all seen and they all understand. He points to the horse, more particular to the horse's bit and bridle. Now I believe that he's more referring to the bridle than the bit uh, because there's a verbal link back to 3.2 back to, I'm sorry, yeah, back to 3.2 uh, that, that shows in 3.2 he tells them, he tells them that, the, that the perfect man is able to bridle the, the whole body as well. But he also says in, verse, in chapter 1 verse 26 he first introduced this verb for bridle. Where he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and and this man's religion is worthless. Now, the reason why I think that's important is because the bridle is directly controlled by the rider. The bridle is directly controlled by the rider. 
Now, James, I think, is wanting to bring out the, the image of the mighty horse, that mankind has, has tamed these great beasts. He illustrates that the whole beast, the whole beast of the horse, has been brought under control by controlling their mouths. Now, we may have, sitting here, the wrong picture of of the horse in mind. We may be thinking of a fully broken horse that eats sugar cubes out of our hands, right? We've all seen that. But I want you to think of the mighty race horse or the mighty war horse, the mighty stallion which has been brought under control by bit and bridle. Just think, the vivid, this vivid analogy depicts the importance of the tongue. It can be used to break the powerful animal, bringing him into full submission. The powerful war horse, the powerful uh, race horse, the mighty stallion can be brought into full submission through its tongue. Through the tongue, control can be exercised over the whole body. Now, James goes on to say, so that they will obey us. We direct their entire body as well. James is literally saying, so they may be persuaded by us. This, this phrase is really a rhetorical question. If we do this with such strong animals as horses, with a mere touch of the rein, and able to turn them here and there and wherever they, we want them to go, shall we not do this with ourselves, who are much greater than the horse? much greater than the horse. Just think of the mighty horse brought under control, brought under subjection by the bit and bridle. And James is saying, why are we not doing this with ourselves? James goes on in 3-4 to say, look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. James goes on to bring up the the great ships which are controlled by this very small rudder. He pictures the rudder directing a ship in, in rough seas. As the seas toss the ship here and there and to and fro, the, the pilot of the ship or the captain of the ship still can control the ship with this very small rudder. you've ever seen great ships today up close it's amazing to think how such a small rudder can control the entire ship you know actually i think of huge airplanes it's the same idea uh, airplanes fly through the air and i love to actually watch videos of airplanes landing i don't know why it's such a uh, I, I'll, I'll finish a sermon prep and i'll be i'll take 15 or 20 minutes and just watch videos of airplanes landing it's it's crazy i know but but what I love to see is pilots landing airplanes in treacherous conditions, and how they they handle the that that incredible size, incredibly sized hulk in the air. What's amazing is that the tiny gestures of the pilot in the cockpit control that flying hunk of metal as the wind whips across the runway. They come in almost sideways at times. I know we have a pilot or two here, but. They come in almost sideways, and then the, the pilot right at the runway straightens it out and lands. And he does so using the controls, right? He has the controls. I've, been a, I've actually been a part of a couple of failed landing attempts due to wind, and a couple of other very rough landings also due to wind. 
And, and I'm amazed at how gracefully pilots land these planes even in, in the worst conditions. There was one where we were coming into Reno and it, we were trying to land the plane and, and he got right down at the, at the tarmac and all of a sudden he, he tried to straighten it out and it dipped and he took, took back off. And I mean, just I, I didn't feel the least bit scared because I, I felt like he was in control of the plane. I'm amazed how they do this. The plane descends and the pilot controls the planes using its instruments and instrument, instrumentation and controls. And the tiny gestures of the pilot control that, that entire plane. He pulls back on the yoke and the plane uh, soars to the sky. He does this with no more strength than a small child requires. It's just, it's amazing. And we're talking millions, I mean thousands of pounds. I don't even know how much some of these weigh. So many modern planes are flown using an electronic signal to control the mechanical aspects of the plane. It would be disastrous if the signal sent by the pilot were somehow mixed up, right? The plane would, would not fly properly and would be in grave danger of, of crashing. Beloved, so it is with our tongues, right? If we don't properly control them, we are in grave danger of, of shipwrecking our lives. If we are unwilling to control our tongues, to bridle our tongues, our lives will never go as we hope. That's the point. Just like the, plane, the pilot couldn't land the plane if the controls were messed up. If the signals weren't being sent properly to the, to the, the mechanical, to the rudder and to the airlines... Air, but I don't even know how to pronounce that, aerolons. But if it weren't properly sent, what would happen? The plane would crash. Last week after the sermon, a couple of weeks ago, that was after the sermon, Megan told me that she used to participate in rowing. So I, I did a little bit of research on rowing. And I found that there's a, in addition to the rowers, there's a position called the, the, the coxswain or the, or the cox. The cox is in charge of the, of the boat and responsible for crew safety. They also are responsible to, to steer. They, they need to know the crew's needs and, the, and they, they see the crew's technical errors. They sit in the boat and they watch the entire thing. They, they must be able to, to diagnose problems as the, as the boat is going. But most importantly, the cox is the voice of, of the coach in the boat. So the coach is not in the boat, the cox is. But the, the cox is the, the voice of the coach. It's important to understand that. So the question is, when the boat competes, who's in charge of the boat? Is it the cox? Well, yes, but no. The cox must ultimately relay the coach's wishes to the rowers because they're the voice of the coach. And if they don't properly relay the wishes of the coach to the team, then the coach doesn't have control of his team. Now, I want you to understand something about all these illustrations. Who has charge over the horse and the ship and the rowing crew? It's the rider, the captain, the pilot, and the coach. The tongue has control over the whole body. But who has control over the tongue? That's the question. We must have control over the tongue. Or we face disastrous results. So how then do you control your tongue? How then do you control, control your tongue? You do so by what? 
rightly informing your heart. By rightly informing your heart. For out of the heart we speak. For out of, out of the heart is what, what spews forth from the mouth. So that when we're under pressure, when we're dealing with difficult issues, when we're dealing with something in the family or, or a heart issue in the church, the, 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 the tendency will be to say the right thing or to be silent when we need to be silent. If the heart has been properly informed. If we have received the Word of God in humility, the Word implanted which is able to save our souls. That's James one twenty one. James goes on to say that in verse 3, 5, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. James affirms that the tongue is a small part of the body, and it boasts of great things. The the tongue is small, but it can do uh, great things. Beloved, the tongue can do great bad or great good. The tongue, we can murder with our tongue. We can start revolutions with our tongue. We can destroy nations with our tongue. We can destroy families with our tongue. We can rip churches apart with our tongue. But the, the tongue can also bring healing, bring positive change, heal nations, and build us up in fellowship in the church. So we must recognize the dominion of the tongue, but ultimately that we are to have dominion over the tongue, right? That's where the true dominion comes from, is having dominion, our dominion over the tongue, controlling the tongue, therefore controlling our body. Fourth, fourth, James says we must reconsider the destructiveness. Reconsider the destructiveness. James says in verse 5, The last part of verse 5, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Here James emphasizes what the tongue can do in spite of its small size. He uses the illustration of a forest fire which can be started by the smallest spark. I believe the day that it happened, uh, the temperature was around 110 that day in Santa Clarita where we were living when I went to seminary, when I was in seminary. Angie and I had taken the kids to the beach for the day. Now, the temperature difference from Santa Clarita to the beach is about 30 degrees, maybe more. I can remember being a little cool that day sitting at the, on, on the water as we enjoyed the sunny and windy day. But as I recall, we first saw the smoke. We first saw the smoke from the fire as we approached Santa Clarita Valley from the west. We first saw it as we were driving in. We knew there was a fire in the valley, but we weren't prepared for how close that fire was to our home. The size of the fire and the, the proximity to our home became apparent as we approached our neighborhood. The fire had started only a mile or so from our home and was now burning out of control within sight of our, within sight of our yard, really. We could see the, the smoke from, from our yard and it was just right there. See the glow of it at night. For the next few days, the, the, the sand fire, as it was called, burned out of control in and around the neighborhoods just down the street from our home. So across the freeway, 
there's a there's a, a road there, um, Sand Canyon Road, where a lot of nice houses are, and this this fire was burning out of control in and around these houses. Even even actually, John MacArthur himself actually lives on that road, and it even burned his back fence. So it didn't burn his home, but it came up and burned the back uh, area behind his house. I will personally never forget the fury of that fire. I can recall seeing full, literally watching and seeing up on the mountainside and seeing full-grown trees burst into flames, just immediately burst into flames. The fire was so, so fierce that it was able to jump uh, natural uh, boundaries like mountain ridges with ease. I mean, it was, it was incredible. It was because it was so dry in that area that it hadn't received in, the area hadn't received any rainfall. That that it was so dry, the the valley was a tinderbox, and there were steady winds blowing and high temps that didn't help the, the firefighting efforts. The hilly terrain and the dry brush it complicated matters as as the fire gained momentum. Now, you know what started that fire? They don't really know for sure what started the fire but they think get this they think that it could have started by car parts coming off a car and skidding across the road into the brush get that days and days of a, of a fire burning out of control one spark set the whole forest on fire think about that one spark of car parts jumping across the pavement set the whole forest on fire. Beloved, our tongues are the same. One wrong word. One wrong word can fell a whole family or church. The tongue is is so powerful, yet we flap it around as if nothing could ever go wrong with what we say. And it has that much power. A talkative woman once tried to justify the quickness of her tongue by saying it passes, it is done with quickly, quickly. To which the evangelist Billy Sunday replied, so does a shotgun blast. So does a shotgun blast. James says, and the tongue is a fire. Just like that little spark that seemed to burn an entire valley, the tongue is a fire that can burn down entire organizations, entire companies, entire churches, and entire families. We must be careful to consider the dangerous destructiveness of the tongue. Like starting a forest fire, producing a wildfire with our tongues requires little effort. Rumors, half-truths, grumbling, sarcastic remarks, hurtful things said in the heat of anger. All these smoldering matches have the potential for burning down acres of family peace and church unity. I've been a part of some failed organization and, and I can tell organizations and I can tell you without hesitation. I can tell you without hesitation that the tongue, the tongue was a greater problem than the economy or the marketplace. When things go awry, the tongue can rip an organization apart. And the tongue is often the little spark that starts the fire. James goes on to say, The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. 
James, go, James goes on to describe the tongue as the very world of iniquity. In other words, he seems to be saying that the tongue is our connection to, the, to a world full of sin. It is through our tongues that we interact with the world. Have you ever noticed that, that it's the tongue that betrays our worldliness, right? When we're talking to a worldly person, it doesn't take long for their world, worldliness to come through in their speech. They can't hide it. I'm always amazed at those who proclaim that they speak their minds. You want to just say, please stop. It reminds me of a story of a young lady I read about at John Wesley. Uh, she came to John Wesley and she said, I think I know what my talent is. And Wesley said, tell me. She replied, I think it is to speak my mind. And Wesley said, I don't think God would mind if you bury that talent. James goes on to say that the, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. The Net Bible just translates this entire phrase. The tongue represents the whole world, the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the entire body. Again, we see the connection between our tongues and the evil world in which we live. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is in the power of the evil one. If we don't control our tongues, if we don't control our tongues, they will be controlled by the world which is under the power of who? Satan. Satan. Therefore the tongue sets on fire the course of our life and it is set on fire by hell. That's what James says. James says the tongue sets on fire the entire course of our lives. This statement most likely refers to the entirety of our existence, past, present, and future. We wrongly use our tongues throughout our existence on earth, engendering jealousy, factions, and vile deeds. We also see the whole, the whole of man's existence has been negatively affected by the tongue. Starting from the garden onward, right? It's interesting to me, just a, an obscure little piece of text, that when Cain killed Abel, the text says, if you, you can read it, the text says in, in Genesis 4, Cain told his brother, or it says, Cain said to his brother. Now, that's all it says. That's all it says. It says, Cain told his brother, or Cain said to his brother. Now, we can't be certain exactly what was said. But I can guarantee you this, it wasn't edifying. It wasn't edifying to him. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist, verse 13.5, was given a mouth for speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. As the bold judgments of Revelation 16 are to be poured out, Men and women will blaspheme the name of God and will not repent so as to give Him glory. From beginning to end, from beginning to end, from the garden until full restoration, men will curse God and curse one another. James says in verse three, chapter 3, verse 7, For every species of beasts and birds and of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. James says that man has been able to tame the whole creation. We've been able to bring the creation into submission. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, or a week or so, actually it was last week, my family and I went to the animal kingdom for the first time. 
And it was amazing to see all the animals on the safari ride. Many of them were dangerous animals. Now, what was amazing is that I, to me is that I saw a couple of, of Disney employees sitting on golf carts in the midst of all these dangerous animals. They were sitting there talking on golf carts. I was thinking, wow, we, we, do, we, really do have, we really do have these animals under, under control. Just think a couple of hundred years ago, much of the state of Florida was still unsettled in the, do, the domain of wild beasts. Where we're sitting right here, a couple of hundred years ago, was the, do, the domain of wild beasts. And yet we have, we have settled it. We have settled here amongst the poisonous snakes and the alligators, and there is very little danger because we have brought them under, into submission, Right? Some of you might be saying, I don't think so. Right, I, I, I understand that. We have settled entire continents, yet James says, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. That's what he says in verse 8. We can't miss the allusion to the serpent in Genesis 3. He was poisonous and his words brought death to all of humanity. This thought is reminiscent of what Paul writes in in Romans 3 about sinful man, right? He was actually alluding to Psalm 5, verses 8 through 10, uh, where the psalmist writes of his foes, There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of, of a viper is under their lips. In Psalm 10.7 it says, His mouth of the wicked, his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Beloved, the tongue is destructive. Ultimately, we all know this to be true, right? We all know it to be true. That's the reason why we need to reconsider the destructiveness. And we need to, to reconsider that and make sure that as Christians that we're speaking in a way that's edifying. That our words are gracious. We just need to cease using our tongues in a way that wreaks havoc. Let's look at the fifth and final tactic. You must reject the duality. James 3, 9-12. through 12. James says in verse 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Here James continues, I believe, his allusion to the opening chapters of Genesis when he speaks of man being made in the likeness of God. We use our tongues to, to praise the good which comes from the God of creation, but we also use our tongues to call down curses on man who was created by God in His image and likeness. Verse 10, James says, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. We do this using the same mouth which God has created to give Him worship. Why has why He created the mouth? Obviously we eat with it and we get our sustenance, but also He's created it to, in order to worship Him. In order to worship the Creator. You know, we come here and we praise God with our mouths and we leave and curse people with the same mouth. I, just, I was thinking, can, can we refrain from cursing the, drive, the driver who cuts you off on the way home from church? Think about that. Think about that. We praise God. We sing songs to His name. We 
pray, and yet we leave the church and we curse the driver who cuts us off. James exhorts them and says it ought not be this way. God has not created the tongue for the act of cursing people, but for blessing him. James goes on to give three quick illustrations. In verse 11, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Nor or can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? The obvious answer to all these is no. The obvious answer is no. God has created each thing according to its purpose. We only have to look at creation to see this played out in example after example after example that God creates things according to its purpose and it does everything according to that purpose. And our mouths and our tongues have been created for the purpose of blessing God. And therefore, when we use it to, bl- to curse people, we are using it for the wrong thing. It ought not be this way, is what he says. From the beginning, from the beginning, many, have, many use their mouths to blaspheme our God. That was the scene at the cross, right? Instead of praising the Lord of glory, they sent him to die a horrific death on a tree. They sent him to die a horrific death on a tree, the tree that he had created. Death on a cross was so repugnant that it was not even spoken of in polite company. And that's where they put the Lord of glory. Turn to Matthew 27. We're going to transition to a time of communion. And I thought it would be good for us to consider Matthew 27 as we approach this time. Especially uh, listening, listen to the blasphemies that were heaved upon our Lord as He suffered and died. In Matthew 27, 27, then the soldiers took, of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him, and they what? They mocked him, saying, "Hail, the King of the Jews!" They spat on him and took the reed which and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him. They took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 35 picks up and says, And when they had crucified him, when they had put him on the cross, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Sitting down, they began to watch over him there. 
And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Verse 39. And those passing by were what? Hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests also with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from that cross from the cross, and we will believe in him. He, he who trusts in God, let him rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who, were, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Beloved, I want to stop there. We weren't created to blaspheme God. Our mouths and our tongues were created to bless God. And we have a a picture here in the words of the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, the creator of the universe on that tree, not for his own sins, not for what he had done. He went there and suffered, suffered for our sins. He suffered for the sins of those who were hurling abuse at him if they would only believe in, in, what, in the work of the cross. And some came to believe, right? Those who insulted him. Many of you have insulted him in your past. But he's shown grace and mercy, right? shown grace and mercy toward you. It says in verse 45, now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. Verse 49, But the rest of them, but the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Still mocking him. Still blaspheming God. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Beloved, beloved, it was our sin. It was our sin that held him there. It's our sin that held him there. We're about to have a time of communion. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you come to believe that that he was on this cross. That he was on this cross not for his own sin, but that he went to the cross to bear our sin, to bear your sin. 
that he took upon himself that sin so that so that you might be imputed, maybe given his righteousness. If you've come to believe and trust in him, then we ask that you partake. But we want you to partake in a in a worthy manner. We want you to examine yourselves. To examine yourselves to see if there be anything that you need to confess. First John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to what? To cleanse us. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take some time. Take some time now as the men pass out the elements, as, as Phil plays and we sing. I want you to take some time to ready your heart. If you have anything against your brother... Uh, our sister in Christ, we ask that you let the elements pass. Uh, we ask that you make that right with them. Go, leave the altar and go to your brother. We ask that if you're a parent and you have children here, that you have worked through with them and, and are confident that they know the Lord Jesus Christ before allowing them to partake. If you're here as a guest... We ask that you partake if you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, we, we do this as believers, remembering His death.